Welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, my name is David Courtright, and I am director of the Global Policy Initiative at Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, and also Professor Emeritus at the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. Today, I'm joined by authors of articles that are part of our latest issue of Peace Policy, a policy-oriented online publication connected to the Kroc Institute. Our latest issue focuses on lessons from the 50th anniversary of the role of soldiers and military veterans in the Vietnam anti-war movement, and the implications and lessons from this social movement for today's anti-war movements and social movements. Our guest writers for the issue are with me today. One is Dana Moss, Assistant Professor of Sociology here at Notre Dame and a faculty fellow at the Kroc Institute. Welcome, Dana. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. And also joining us is Chuck Searcy, the International Advisor of Project Renew and co-chair of the NGO uh, Agent Orange Working Group in Vietnam, also co-founder and president of the Veterans for Peace chapter in Vietnam, and he's joining us today from Hanoi. Welcome, Chuck. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. And Dana. Good. We'll start with you, Chuck. Could you tell us about your service? You were a military intelligence officer in Vietnam during the war and how that led you to begin to question the war. Actually, I was not an intelligence officer. I was an enlisted man, but I was uh, the rank of sergeant in Vietnam, E-5. And I was trained as, a, as an intelligence analyst assigned to the 519th Military Intelligence Battalion. My duty station was a place called Combined Intelligence Center, Vietnam. And we produced a lot of uh, reports of enemy assessments, Viet Cong, North Vietnamese troop movements, political situation in the villages, economic trends, a, a lot of quite interesting material. And in working on all of these classified documents, I began to see some inconsistencies, but also patterns that, that worried me about our involvement in Vietnam and the reality on the ground compared to what we had been told in the U.S., what Americans were still being told. And I began to question a lot about the war and my role in it. I had the added advantage, in addition to being an intelligence analyst, my unit had access in Saigon. We had access to a lot more than guys in the field had. We had access to a lot of books, magazines, materials from the U.S. and from Vietnam. And so I also read a lot of history about Vietnam, which I didn't know before I arrived. I learned about the politics of Vietnam. I learned about the culture. Even reading uh, Ho Chi Minh speeches and reading uh, documents from North Vietnam helped to shape my view of the war which is very contrary to what I've been told in the U.S. So within a very short time, I underwent a transformation that was shared by most of the guys in my unit. Within three or four months, almost every one of us, after arriving in Vietnam, really turned against the war. We just decided it was wrong, that it was the wrong policy, it was disastrous for the Vietnamese, it was terrible for the American people, and that we'd been lied to. And we were now part of this institutional lie. So it was a jarring moment in my life as a naive young Georgia boy who thought that the United States could never do wrong. Thank you. Many of us who were in the military at that time went through similar kinds of 
conversion and there was a growing anti-war movement within the military and among veterans in those days. Not very well known movement, but it's coming to light more with scholarship and analysis of those days. And I'd like to turn to you, Dana, as a scholar who's beginning to look into this movement, why you think it's important now to, to learn about this movement of veterans and soldiers from the Vietnam era. Thank you, David. And it's really fascinated to hear about Chuck's experience as someone who's interested in this movement as an outsider. I first became aware of the GI rebellion and GI movement through uh, an important film, which some of our listeners might be familiar with, Sir No Sir by David Zeiger, highly recommended, about not only the way that the GIs and early veterans of the Vietnam War became active and very essential in the peace movement, but also the documentary touches on the ways that history was revised and essentially how this history was erased. A lot of times when we talk about the peace movement, we talk about it as, you know, hippies or as civilians to the complete exclusion of people who are actually involved in military operations in Vietnam. And this really struck me for a number of reasons. I think one, it's just an incredibly important case of widespread mobilization and rebellion within the military that we never hear about. Certainly growing up, I never learned about it at all. It's sort of a a black marker, a, a kind of empty space in our American history that I think warrants a lot more attention. And, you know, as a sociologist, it's also fascinating because When we learn about protests and social movements, we tend to think about maybe the civil rights movement. We tend to think about people who are outside of institutions. But what the GI movement really reflects on and and speaks to is the fact that a major part of the anti-war resistance took place from people who had been inside the institution. And for this reason, I think it's in, it's an incredibly important case. It remains understudied and, and underexamined. And, you know, we're here at this moment in history where we know it's very important which side the military takes in terms of policy. So for those reasons, I'm just fascinated by it. I've remained fascinated by it for many years, and now I'm turning to start a new book project on it. Thank you. There were many of us, as I was saying, who are part of the movement, and you saw underground newspapers published at a lot of military bases and even aboard ships. Soldiers were participating in peace rallies usually off-duty, out of uniform, away from the base. That's the military regulation. But we exercised our First Amendment rights to to speak out. And the movement also emerged among veterans as they were coming back from Vietnam after their military service, who began to speak out publicly as well. And one of the key organizations at that time was Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And just a couple weeks ago was the 50th anniversary of one of the biggest protests by the Vietnam veterans in Washington, D.C., the Dewey Canyon 3 operation, it was called. That was the name of a failed military operation that the U.S. military, or actually two of them that we had undertaken in, the, uh, in Vietnam at the Laotian border. So anyway, the veterans were at that protest. And I know, Chuck, you were one of the veterans who came to that action and, and participated in Vietnam veterans against the war. And maybe you could tell us about what motivated you to join uh, VVAW and, and then to come to Washington for that protest. And What happened there? Well, during my last year in the Army, I was quite lucky in a way. At the time, I didn't think so. But because I had enlisted in the Army, I had a three-year obligation. And when I left Vietnam at the end of two years, I still had one more year to go. And I was very 
displeased with that prospect. But fortunately, I was transferred to Germany, and it was excellent duty. I was at U.S. Army Europe headquarters, and there was no threats, no danger whatsoever, a beautiful city, Heidelberg, Germany, and a student town. And I had a year, the last year in the Army, to really decompress and put the Vietnam experience into some perspective. And during that time, I got beyond the anger and the bitterness that I felt about the war and what was happening in Vietnam. And I committed myself to come back to the U.S. and somehow get involved in the anti-war movement. And I had no idea how that might take shape. When I came back to the U.S., VVAW, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, became the mechanism for that for me. At the University of Georgia, we formed a small chapter of the VVAW and began to speak to classes and church groups and rotary clubs and any group that would have us and explain why we were opposed to the war. So the Dewey Canyon 3 was kind of the, the first real national action that I was involved in. And I just felt the need to participate, to both assert myself publicly for my own sense of commitment, but also to show others, my friends and classmates, fellow veterans, and my, my family, who were very much opposed to my opposition to the war, they were quite shocked that I was disagreeing with the policy of the U.S. government. But this was a way of affirming to everyone my commitment to doing everything possible to end the war. Great. Dana, so you've been studying the movement and learning about all of these protests what has been the most significant or surprising finding for you as you've been doing this research and location do you have from that finding? So I'm right at the beginning of this research, but a couple of things stand out, I think, so far. You know, one is the extraordinary showing of an alternative kind of loyalty that Vietnam veterans and active duty military soldiers like Susan Schnall, who did protest in her uniform and got penalized heavily for it, showed to the American public. I think, you know, sociologists, I think rightly or wrongly, oftentimes erroneously, Think about the state as bifurcated from society and that social movements are part of society and they're advocating against the state. But here you had cases, particularly in the Dewey Canyon 3 protest on the Washington, D.C. Mall, where folks representing the, the U.S. military and those who had served and spent time in Vietnam who knew more about what was going on than a lot of the people making policy about it, throwing their medals back to the government to say, you know, that this was wrong and they rejected this sort of false awarding of, of their service. I don't know what the, what the right term would be, you know, throwing your medals back, throwing your commendations back to the government to say that this is the wrong thing, that we're the bad guys in this situation. It really changed the narrative about patriotism and it really changed the narrative about what was right and, and what was wrong in that time. And it, it was just something extraordinary that we haven't really seen in these endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's been really striking. Another thing that, that'll be very important for me to focus on as the study unfolds is the importance of race in the rebellions. Because so far, what I am hearing from people is that the VVAW was an incredibly important organization. And a lot of times the chapters were formed 
by folks around universities, but a lot of times it wasn't necessarily an option or perceived as very welcoming to people of color. So what I'm going to be looking at in the future is how Black soldiers rebelled differently or maybe uh, how their rebellion took different forms when they didn't necessarily feel welcome among a white majority veteran movement and GI movement. This isn't to say that people didn't work together in, in sort of a cross-race coalition. Of course they did. But there were so many ways in which service was stratified and extremely penalizing for people of color at that time that the options that they had to protest in some ways were delimited. So I'm really interested in exploring these race differences and class differences. And I think there's so much yet that we still have to learn. And I'll say that every time I you know, talk to this with my students and I show them the David Zeiger film, they're always extremely excited and, and they're looking forward to hearing what I find as much as I think I am. So I hope that it can be useful to different generations who are very eager, I think, to learn more about this time in history that still needs so much attention and that you, David, uh, have done so much to, to bring to our attention. You know, we should mention for the record in this podcast that that David, I think, has done more of the work to bring this to light than any other scholar or, or academic that I know. And, and we're very grateful to you for providing that foundation because without it, you know, random sociologists like myself wouldn't have a clue. Well, well, thank you for that. And thank you for your observations there. Maybe we should delve into those. There's two big ideas here, uh, a kind of a new way of thinking about patriotism and loyalty to the country, and then the, the whole issue of race and, and people of color participating in this movement. I think on the patriotism side, it's interesting, and I'll ask you, Chuck, for your thoughts, but it's when, before the VVAW action in Washington, there was an event in Detroit, and it was entitled the Winter Soldier Hearing and Investigation. And this term Winter Soldier was, of course, appropriated from Tom Paine's famous passage about the Winter Soldiers who stand by their country, even in the most difficult times. And we felt that way in speaking out against the war. We were taking a risk to speak out for peace inside the army, as you can imagine. But we were motivated by this deep sense that our country had gone wrong, terribly wrong, and that we needed to call our fellow citizens to attention to what was going on in Vietnam. It wasn't, as Chuck was saying, it wasn't all this great, glorious fight against communism and for freedom. We were destroying Vietnam and killing so many innocent people. And this was tearing our country apart and dishonoring our country, and we had to speak out. And that, so that motivation to help our country and be patriots of a new type was very much part of our ethos and how we were motivated to act uh, during this movement. Chuck, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on how those motivations about patriotism and, and our love of our country motivated our actions. I think our own sense of patriotic commitment eventually was captured by the, the larger public. And we didn't really, I don't think we intended that or didn't really think about it. But I remember my, the early arguments that I had with my father and my mother who were very displeased with my public anti-war activities. I had a lot to do with patriotism. And my father accused me of not being patriotic, not supporting our government. I was not a good American. He was a veteran of World War II. He was captured by the Germans in the Battle of the Bulge, which was POW for some weeks, not so many months, not even a year, but a stretch enough to have a huge impact on him. And for him, it was unthinkable that I would go to war and come back and oppose that war. 
that act by definition was unpatriotic. And we had a long period of estrangement when we had no contact whatsoever. One day my father called me. I was living in Athens, Georgia at the time at the University of Georgia. And they were in, living in South Carolina. And my father called me and said, Chuck, I'm just passing through town. I wonder if you have time for a cup of coffee. And I said, yes, sir. And we got together at a, a Waffle House or some roadside cafe and talked about the weather for a long time. And finally, he said, well, your mother and I have been talking. And he said, we have decided that this war is a terrible thing. It's got to stop. He said, we think you were right. And we were wrong. And he said, we would like for you to come back home. And it was a very moving moment in my life. I'll never forget it. But they had gone through a complete rethinking of patriotism for themselves, what it, what it meant based on our, our earlier disagreements. And like many families in America, they made a slow turn and come around and decided that the war was wrong and, and they would do everything they could to stop it as well. For us as Americans, we're certainly not the only people in the world who, who uh, think that this term patriotism is something very special. I, a lot of nations feel that, but I think we've been through a transformation in how we define it and how it affects our lives. And Vietnam was the uh, first time in my life that that process actually began. And yeah, thank you for that moving story. And on the, the issue of race is also part of our understanding of ourselves as citizens of this country, particularly, and given our troubled history on issues of race. And I'm grateful to you, Dana, for raising that as one of the big questions to address. And as I reflect back upon it in our anti-war groups that we had at Fort Bliss and Fort Hamilton, New York, where I was based, there were a lot of black soldiers who opposed the war. And uh, they seemed to be more anti-military, more anti-war than the rest of the troops. But the culture of the military was divided by race in many respects. You know, the black guys hung out by themselves. And in Vietnam, you know, the, the term was the bloods, the guys who hung out together, a wonderful book by Wallace Terry, who really brought this whole phenomenon to life, sadly. Um, but they were strongly anti-war, anti-military, many of them. But their movement was separate from ours. And, and that's, uh, you know, I, I write about this in a work that I'm doing now and, and reflect upon, could we have done more? We never really reached out to the black guys. We knew that they were anti-war, but we were comfortable with the guys who were in our units who were mostly white working together. So hopefully we've learned some things in movements since then over the decades, but uh, I think this is a general problem in social movements. And I don't know, Dan, if you have any broader thoughts on that, and Chuck, maybe you can reflect on this as well. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I that's come to my attention by speaking with a gentleman who was conscripted in, into Vietnam, we're just starting to delve into his story piece by piece. But one thing that's been so striking about our conversation to me is this incredible sense of isolation. Much like with the case of women in combat units today, if you were an African-American in, let's say, an infantry unit, you might be one of 12 in your squad, you know, or there might be a dozen of you in, in a platoon. But a lot of times you were incredibly isolated within that. So your your opposition to the war might be strong and you might have comrades who you're able to socialize with 
to discuss that. But anytime it seems that folks got together, particularly during their deployment, to discuss it, to question authority, to oppose their policy, which was reckless, both for, of course, Vietnamese lives and for American lives, these folks, African-Americans and other people of color, were heavily, heavily punished and repressed, more likely to be thrown in the brig, more likely to be dishonorably discharged, more likely to be withheld from promotion. And so there's a lot of active repression, I think, both within the military institution and at a social level back in the United States to prevent African-Americans from, I think, organizing the ways that we might have seen if there hadn't been this incredible level of isolation and racism. Susan Schnall mentioned to me, who was an outspoken participant, she was a Navy nurse and, again, uh, marched against the war in uniform as a very brave act. She had mentioned, too, that she found the VVAW to be completely laudable, but also isolating both for people of color and for women. And again, as you mentioned, David, this is a huge problem for movements. You know, this is a structural issue. If if most of the people in Vietnam are white, then probably the, the movement that comes out of it is going to be mostly white. But then how do you bridge some of these broader divides within a movement that is itself a part of society and embedded in these institutions. It's very, very challenging. So I'm looking forward to learning more about this because it's very important. One of the things that's so striking about the Vietnam War is that racism is unfolding a number of levels. You have the sort of imperialistic institutional racism against the people of what was then called Indochina and the Vietnamese. And then of course you have extreme racism within the military itself. And so a lot of times it seems just as you know, women have that second shift phenomenon going on, working during the day and then working at home. Soldiers of color oftentimes have a double battle to fight in terms of the racism that they fight within the military institution and the general racist policies of the institution itself. So it's definitely needs more explanation and, and exploration. I'm looking forward to getting into that. I think it's really relevant to a lot of issues that we're facing today. Chuck, what are your thoughts on that? Back in the U.S. when I was engaged in the anti-war movement, we didn't have any black members of VVAW. In fact, I didn't at that time, I didn't even know a black veteran at the University of Georgia. So it was really a reflection of society and a reflection of the circumstances which I found myself. We did have quite a lot of racial crossover as part of the anti-war movement. More specifically, it became directed into politics with the 1972 political conventions, where black community organizers, black churches, labor unions, Vietnam veterans, progressive women, quite a lot of people came together under one umbrella. And the anti-war theme was very much part of that, but it was not exclusively our focus. But we did have quite an important bonding during that period. It lasted for a couple of years and then it gradually dissipated. Yeah, and the issue of, of race, also, as Dana was pointing out, is at the root of some of our own policies and the way in which we as soldiers were conditioned to refer to the Vietnamese with derogatory terms and to think of them as somehow inferior. And this is something that we see very pervasively in the history of the Vietnam War. In fact, the whole U.S. military and the strategic analysis somehow thought that the Vietnamese couldn't possibly defeat this great imperial power of the United States, you know, their peasant country. What do they know? And uh, well, we learned <laughs> a very hard lesson. The 
costs of underestimating other people, of dehumanizing people who have their own values and who have been fighting for their own independence and unification for a long time before we ever showed up. So that dehumanization of others is so much at the core of our military and imperial policies. And we see it in Iraq, again, same pattern of using derogatory terms against uh, Arab Americans, Muslims, people of color who are somehow seen to be inferior or dangerous just by virtue of who they are. And this process of dehumanization then makes it easier to commit violence against them, to attack them and to somehow assume that our ideas and our way of life is superior and they'll love it once they get used to it, kind of. So this general linking of, of racial prejudices and dehumanization of other, I think is very much linked to our, our military policies and, and how movements now try to overcome that in this country today, especially over the last year with the Black Lives Matter movements and others. We've seen a coming together of black and white or people of all different colors and backgrounds working for racial justice. And I wonder if this is going to create new possibilities for movements, not just on the specific issues of racial justice, but, but other issues as well. I don't know, Dana, if you have any reflections on that. That may be a little bit overly optimistic on my part, but as you say, it is an important theme for understanding the movements that come out of the military experience, but also more broadly in society. Yeah, I think there are a lot of intersections here that are very important on a number of levels. One thing that my spouse, Layla Picard, who's a graduate student in political science at the University of Virginia, is looking at is how members of the military today are contesting policies related to transphobia. We know that there was a ban on trans people serving in the military under Donald Trump and, and so forth. The, the issue, I think, for a lot of sociologists is they tend not to necessarily look at mobilization happening within the military because the military is seen as an institution of power and of violence. And, and that's not necessarily wrong. But we also have to remember that today, with the all-volunteer force, the military is a huge employer of the working classes, of people of color. For trans people, a lot of times it might be the only opportunity people have to get a job and, and health benefits. And there is a lot of mobilization happening within the military today to try to prevent sexual assault and other kinds of discrimination, whether that be racial or otherwise. And if we think about, you know, going back to to the inauguration day of Joseph Biden on January 20th, seeing all the 20,000 National Guard defending the inauguration process of, of our current president, we have to keep in mind that the military isn't just an institution, and I'm really speaking to sociologists here, you all know this very well, but the military isn't just an institution, it's made of people. And whether they're mobilizing for racial justice and anti-discrimination is very important. Likewise, whether, whether members of the military are mobilizing for extremism, we see you know, the military sort of scrambling to purge some of its members who were involved in the January 6th insurrection against the Capitol building. It's incredibly important. It's important both for the people involved and it's very important for the kinds of policies that our governments enact. And it's important for the continuation of democracy itself. When you were speaking of Afghanistan and the Middle East, uh, I was thinking about some of my work, which deals more with uh, social movements that have taken place in and around the Arab world, the Arab majority world. 
And, you know, I was thinking back to, for example, the 2011 revolution in Yemen. We saw protesters and soldiers who were defecting to this peaceful revolution that happened, you know, joining together, sharing moments of joy. The civilian protesters would be handing the soldiers flowers. What members of the military decide to do in these moments of protest and crisis is incredibly important. I was very struck in David Zeiger's film about stories that he revealed about active duty military members refusing to obey orders. And I think that this is something that's incredibly important for us to look at. You know, when when the state asks you to commit acts of violence, what soldiers decide to do, again, determines so much about what actually happens. And, And their rebellion can be vastly more effective than civilian rebellion in terms of stopping violence occurring in the world directly. So there are all kinds of things about what happened in the 1960s and 70s that are incredibly relevant today. And and again, I'm looking forward to expanding my conversation with folks like yourself, with Chuck, and also with activists today to get their thoughts, because I think there are a lot of connections that need to be made. Dana, I'm interested in the work you're doing, the research you're doing, and it, it brings a thought to mind, which David, you can probably answer, because you've done so much research into these topics. It occurred to me that you know, in basic training in the army, we were taught to scream and yell and go crazy and and, and kill the enemy. You know, the, the spirit of the bayonet fighter. What's the spirit of this company? To kill, to kill, to kill, and to kill gooks, to kill the Vietnamese. And we, it was a dehumanizing process, and we were supposed to hate them. It didn't really take on all of us because I'd never met a Vietnamese, and I was sort of open to the idea of finding out more about them. And it turned out I liked the Vietnamese. And a lot of guys felt the same way. But I had also been growing up in Georgia. I sort of had inculcated into my being this racism that was part of the whole society. And I didn't have any bad feelings for anybody. I didn't really, don't think I hated anybody for any reason. But I just, there was this, this barrier between the white community and the black community. And it just occurred to me listening to you, Dana, and thinking about the social implications of these uh, the institutional training that we all go through. The Vietnamese seem to be very different. I've never looked at their training regimen, how they are brought into the, the army and uh, what the skills that they're taught, but also the attitudes. And attitude in a, an army like the People's Army is quite important. Historically, they've had units that were always included an important position of political officer, which was somebody who was like the a social worker, like the counselor, like discuss any problems they might be having. But I just can't imagine that the Vietnamese were taught to hate Americans. Some of them did, I'm sure, and for, for very good reason. But most of them have a very forgiving attitude toward us, as if we were caught in a trap that we couldn't escape, and, and they feel some sympathy for us. Yeah, it's a really good point, Chuck. I, I haven't studied in detail the Vietnamese training programs, but As you say, this was a people's war, a people's army. They were fighting for their own independence, their unification against foreign invaders. So the whole character of their military, their resistance was rooted in the community. And a very important point you make about their being trained not to hate us. There really was a sense by the Vietnamese political leadership, starting from Ho Chi Minh and others then after he passed away, that... This was a a political struggle. Yes, they had to fight the Americans, and there was a bitter struggle. But uh, they understood that ultimately they had to win the hearts and minds of Americans. 
and people around the world for their struggle. And they felt that people were on their side because they felt they were on the side of the right cause. I came to see that myself as I was studying the history of the war. While I'm still a soldier, it was a very jarring experience to think that, well, the other guy has the cause of justice on his side. You know, Ho Chi Minh's maybe a, a latter-day George Washington for, for the Vietnamese people. And here I am in an army that's supposed to be killing him and his people. I wonder, Chuck, if you could talk about, you were living in Hanoi and, and you're one of the veterans who went back to try to help the Vietnamese to, to heal the wounds of war, but also to try to seek reconciliation. Tell us a bit about that experience and what do you, what do you think it means for trying to build reconciliation generally with uh, former adversaries? Well, it, for me, it has been a wonderful experience. It's extended far beyond what I expected. I came here with a three-year commitment to work in Vietnam and then presumably go back to my front porch in Athens, Georgia. And here it is 25, more than 25 years later, I'm still here. But it's been very uh, rewarding, the, the work of dealing with the consequences of the war. Explosive Ordnance and Agent Orange is a rewarding challenge and a big challenge. But the life in Vietnam and becoming friends with a lot of Vietnamese people my age and younger and older has been really wonderful. I've learned a lot from the Vietnamese from their history, their politics, and their, their culture, which is very rich. And there's some aspects of that that for most Americans are very surprising. One is, as I mentioned before, their incredible capacity for forgiveness. And Americans just find that almost shocking. We're, we're sort of in disbelief when Vietnamese tell us that it's okay, the war is over, it was a long time ago. You didn't make the decisions, the policy. It was terrible what happened, but that was the U.S. government. The American people eventually forced the U.S. government to stop the war. And so we have great respect for the American people. You're a veteran. I was a veteran. We know what war was like. It's terrible for both of us. But today we're friends. And I've seen so many cases where American veterans and Vietnamese veterans reached out and hugged each other with tears coming down their faces. It's a very emotional experience. But the capacity for forgiveness and for looking to the future is overwhelming here. The Vietnamese very pragmatically do not allow themselves to get trapped in the past. They respect the past, the history of the country, and they have great admiration for those who came before and who sacrificed so much for them. But they don't dwell on that. They know that there's nothing about the past that they can change. What they can change is today and tomorrow and the future and build a better future for their children and for the next generations. And they welcome our participation, and our help and assistance in that. And for that reason, we have really formed a bond of friendship over the years. And we work very closely together in, in dealing with these consequences of war. So it's a shared effort. It's a responsibility that I feel as an American citizen and as a veteran. But the U.S. does have a very heavy responsibility for trying to deal with some of the damage that we caused here, which was, was extensive. The Vietnamese don't press that issue. They're appreciative for the help that we provide, and they're very happy to work with us as friends and partners. It really has been, for me, a very positive and very overwhelming experience, and I've learned a lot 
from that experience. Dana, I wonder how you think of this process of reconciliation post-war and the role of veterans in that process. How could that apply today? We've been still, our country, in these endless wars and pretty big wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that are Afghanistan now coming to an end. How do we see ourselves in this country towards those whom we wage war against? And what is the role of veterans in, uh, in trying to bring our country towards reconciliation, but also learning lessons about why we are in these wars and how, can, how we can avoid them in the future? Yeah, thank you, David. I, I'm very moved by what Chuck was saying. It's it's beyond important, I think. Americans are so, in some ways, isolated and undereducated. Even many of us who have, you know, fancy degrees and, and, and incredible privileges in education might not know much about the places where the United States is involved in conflict and combat and, and invasion and, and bombing and drone strikes. And not only that, but sometimes peace and anti-racist activists make the mistake of excluding people who represent those countries from conversations. For about 10 years, I was part of an organization run by my spouse called the Yemen Peace Project, which sought to bring American attention to the terrible atrocities that the U.S. government was culpable of in the country of Yemen, a country that's officially our ally. And at the time, I should say, starting in 2010, we were not at war with and yet we were involved in drone strikes that were killing civilians in some of the poorest regions of Yemen, which is already one of the poorest countries in the world. And I'll say that, you know, the reception that we got both from as, as former Arabic language students and, and visitors and guests of the country of Yemen, the reception we got from both Yemenis and Americans was fantastic. I think people were very excited to both learn about, Americans were excited to learn about Yemen, Yemenis were excited to have an opportunity to teach Americans and have more contact. But this really is something that needs to be consciously fostered. It doesn't happen by magic. I think most Americans can't locate Afghanistan on the map. They maybe have never eaten Afghan food. They've ne maybe never talked to a person from Afghanistan or Iraq. This is something that that activists, I think, can, can be really diligent in. And, and bringing together people who are veterans with these populations is incredibly important. And also bridging divides, political and ideological divides, I would say, would be my last sort of hope for the future. I think, you know, for example, there, I know many Libyan Americans who strongly, because they had families in Benghazi and other places in Libya that were under attack by Muammar Gaddafi, these folks were very strongly in support of the American intervention in 2011. They were not, the Americans didn't lead the intervention, but, but they were part of it. And I think that what a lot of Libyan Americans found was that they were completely excluded from conversations with peace activists about what was going on in their country, what was going on with their families. And it's not to say who was right or who was wrong. Instead, to say that even when these conversations are uncomfortable, even when people don't agree, people need to come together to be open to have these discussions. And they certainly need to be mindful of including the very people for whom they're speaking for. So, you know, Chuck is the perfect example of this, of working with the Vietnamese in Vietnam to try to repair some of the damage that the American military caused. I would hope in the future that peace activists and scholars of peace bring in Yemenis, Libyans, Syrians, other people from around the world into these conversations, into their scholarship, 
to learn from them because a lot of times, of course, their perspective is a huge deal to teach us. I've learned a lot about peace policy and U.S. policy through this research, and it's helped to give my opinions and ideas about American policy a really much needed nuance, I'll say. So that would be my hope for the future. And I think it's something that people are very interested in doing. And if anybody out there listening needs suggestions, I'm sure that I'm available over email if people want to reach out. And and I know Chuck is incredibly generous with his time and is often available over email too. But this kind of work, these kinds of conversations, this cross-cultural, cross-national bridging is is really the way forward, I think. Yeah, so true. And in our own country, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the uh, 9-11 attacks and then the rise of this so-called war on terror and and a lot of uh, Islamophobia, racial animus towards people in this country who were perceived to be somehow part of this uh, force that had attacked us and Muslim Americans, even South Asians who have nothing, you know, like Hindus or others had no involvement in this. People of color generally suffered a lot of discrimination and hostility and it's still going on, and it's a crisis, but it's also an opportunity for us in society to, as you say, find common ground, to have dialogue and communication, and build a broader movement that's for democracy and for the rights and freedom of people in whatever country they're living, whatever their background might be. But at the same time, then, to understand and try to have dialogue with those people in other countries, never to be attacking them when we don't know anything about them or have any justification for doing so. Think of Afghanistan. When we went there, I don't think there was any person in the U.S. mission who spoke posture. And when we went to Iraq in the so-called occupation authority, there were less than a handful of people who spoke good Arabic. So this arrogance that we have of thinking that we can dictate to people we know, we know nothing about has to end completely in understanding languages, cultures for a better foreign policy, and then doing the same within our own country to build greater unity for perfecting, trying to build our democracy here at home. So thank you both for your wonderful observations and comments here, and thank you all for listening. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you all this morning, and thanks also to Chuck for your continued work, David, for your continued work for for peace and restoration. Dana, thank you, and David, thank you also. Very enjoyable to to have this discussion with you. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. And if you want to read the peace policy articles discussed in today's episode, visit peacepolicy.nd.edu. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Kroc Institute, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.